So if you're in the lobby, you can come back in now with your kids. Hey, um, I just, as I watch that video, keep thinking of the words that Evie shared. Uh, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't turn a hard heart. And that's very moving. God is calling. There's no question that he's saying something to you. I just encourage you to uh, respond to what he's asking. Uh, good morning. It's good to be back in the house with you guys. I miss uh, worship. I miss being with you uh, when I'm not here on Sundays. But I do want to stop and just thank uh, Kevin and Stacy. Uh, they did a fabulous job handling Romans the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, for Kevin and me, this is what we do. But when somebody like Stacy, who uh, has a real job uh, and still puts the time and energy in preparing, uh, she just did a great job. And I'm just, uh, I'm really proud of the teaching team that we have here. And it's great that I can leave for a few weeks and uh, everything uh, gets done and is handled well. Um, but I just want to thank them. So we're in week four of the series on the book of Romans. Uh, And what we're going to see today is that the writer Paul is going to make a pretty dramatic shift in what he wants the readers to understand. Uh, The book of Romans is written late in uh, Paul's ministry, and he has witnessed incredible triumph. He's he's witnessed the church rising up and, and, and doing spectacular things, but he's also witnessed Uh, great tragedy. He's witnessed church splits. He's witnessed uh, the church getting it wrong, if you will, in many ways. And there's no question that that's on his mind. As I've been uh, reading and studying this, especially this last week, I've been thinking about uh, Paul sitting and writing Romans and reflecting on all of that ministry and uh, all of that experience, right? He's writing a letter to address what he knows is going to be the common pitfalls of the faith. If I were to write a letter to you, Grace Community Church, now, after a couple decades of leading uh, the church, uh, that letter would be completely different than if I were to write that letter, say, in my 30s. So what we have here is, is a letter late in Paul's life with all of that rich experience. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans uh, chapter 4. If you have the journals with you, these uh, small journals that we're encouraging you to get, we are on page 20. If you're in the Bibles under your seat, we're on page 941. Bring a Bible, uh, bring whatever you use at home to study with, take notes, write in the margin of your Bible, underline keywords, uh, interact with the text. It's going to help you to remember. Uh, I encourage you Uh, get one of these journals. It's just a great tool. Uh, Every other page is blank. It's a great way to take some notes. Uh, This is actually a picture of my journal, uh, just so that you know that I'm actually participating with you. But also, it's just a great way. Uh, I circle, I underline, I draw lines. I, it just, it's a great way. I wish there was actually about two or three blank pages for every page uh, to write in. But this is a great tool. And they're only five bucks. Uh, get one. I'll uh, refer to it even today. Uh, but we want you to have one. Before we read, I want to give you just a quick overview of where we are in Romans. Paul is up to this point, really through uh, chapters 1 and 2 and most of chapter 3, Paul has been uh, giving us what Stacy pointed out last week as the bad news. He's been making it crystal clear that we are all, underline the word all, sinners, right? He writes, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's making it clear that we've all been found guilty of sin, and the sentence, if you will, for our guilt is death. Three key words to hang on to. All have sinned 
And the penalty is death. All sin and death. That's the bad news. But now Paul, as we finish chapter 3 and move into chapter 4, he's making a shift. He's banging a, a different drum, if you will, and he's bringing us the good news. So I've invited uh, Evie Richards to come up, and she's going to read our passage for us, Romans 4. So I encourage you to stand. And as she reads Romans 4, listen for the good news. Like, ask yourself, where's the good news in Romans 4? So as she reads, listen for that, and I will grab your music stand. Is your mic on? Yes. All right. Is that good? All right. Good morning, Grace. All right. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath but there is no law where there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, show Sal your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Romans chapter 4. I just pray that in these next few minutes that you would use uh, my words, the sermon, that you would speak a word to us. I thank you that you have already uh, been speaking to many of us. I thank you for the worship set. I thank you for uh, just how your spirit is alive and well. I pray that uh, we, each one of us, would leave this room different than we came because we have had an encounter with the living God. Thank you that you see us, that you know us, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know everything about us, that you love us. I just pray that you would speak and that we would listen. The words that you say would uh, go deep into our hearts, that it would uh, be a seed that's planted, that grows deep roots, that bears fruit a hundredfold. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what if I were to tell you There is one common pitfall that hinders your ability to continue to grow spiritually. One common pitfall that holds you back from everything that God has for you. Wouldn't you want to know what the pitfall is? I would think so. Paul knows about the pitfall. Matter of fact, He has seen the same thing happen in nearly every church that he's planted. He has seen it over and over and over. And now he sits down late in his life to write the book of Romans to the the Roman people. And what he's trying to do is is cut it off at the pass. He He is trying to set the record straight. And here's the deal. Regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, whether you're in junior high or or retired male, female, doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. So you may be a seasoned believer and you may be just coming into the faith. It doesn't matter. It is imperative, absolutely imperative, that you have an accurate understanding of the gospel. And what you need to know or what you need to guard yourself against and what your enemy is trying to do is, and he's doing, working overtime to do it, is to dilute or dismantle the truth of the gospel. And Paul starts in Romans 1, and he is driving a stake in the ground, and he is saying, this is the gospel. Through faith. And nothing else. Through faith, we are given extraordinary, undeserved, unmerited favor. One of the things uh, Stacy said last week is that Romans is uh, Christianity 101. I was driving in my car coming back from my trip, and I was listening to the message, and I thought to myself immediately, it is indeed Christianity 101, but it's also 201 and 301, and it's some graduate-level work as well. Romans is full of great theology for us to understand. So with that in mind, let's take a look a little more closely at Romans chapter 4. And what we're going to do is we're going to remind ourselves 
What is the true gospel? If you look at your Bibles or if you're using your your journals that we're pushing so hard, you'll notice that at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, there's a heading there, right? It says, Abraham justified by faith. Now, keep in mind, we know that, that with the exception of the Psalms, those headings are not part of the ancient text, the original text. They're put there for us to, to navigate the scriptures a little more clearly. But this is indeed what this chapter is all about, justification by faith. I think Stacy touched on this, but justification or to be justified, it means that even though, as we just talked about, we are all guilty of sin, when you put your faith in Jesus, there is a transaction that takes place because of the cross, because of what Jesus did on the cross, where you are now seen as just. You are made right before God. Your sins are forgiven and you are no longer seen as guilty. You no longer earn that, that penalty of sin, you are then seen as just. And chapter 4 is making it crystal clear that that transaction is by faith and faith alone. You cannot earn it and you cannot work for it. Being justified is a gift of faith. And what Paul is doing is he wants us to know, but he especially wants the Jewish readers to know that this is the way it is, but this is the way it always has been. So he's using the patriarch, he's using Abraham, and he's using David as examples because he knows that those Jewish readers would have a high level of esteem for both of those men. And he says, just so you know, Abraham was saved by faith and David was saved by faith. This is the way that it's always been. No one in the Old Testament was ever saved by works. How do we know that? Well, because no one except for Jesus ever kept the law. We also know it because the scriptures make it clear. Being right with God has always been about faith and faith alone. There's only one covenant of grace. It's the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. So Paul quotes Genesis and he quotes Psalms to make his point. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. All of the patriarchs were saved by faith. Look at verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted. I memorized that verse as a child as credited to him. I like the word credited better because for me it's more of, it kind of captures the idea of the gift. It captures the idea of getting something that you didn't pay for. You're, you're You're getting it credited to your account even though you haven't earned it. Abraham believed and it was credited to him. It is justification was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? He believed in the promises of God. He put his confidence in the truth that what God said was true. He put his faith in the fact that that God's promises are trustworthy. And here's the deal. He believed even when it seemed impossible. Even when it seemed outrageous, he still believed. I want to give you a definition of faith that, that has helped me. Faith is an active trust in God. Keyword there is active. A belief in what he says is true that results in action. So the two words I want you to hold on to is it's active and it results in action. If your faith doesn't translate into action, right, if it doesn't affect your behavior or your attitudes, then it's not faith. Genuine faith always 
results in movement. You can tell me you have faith in Jesus, but if your life doesn't change, if there's nothing different about your lifestyle, if everything stays the same, then your faith is dead. And don't get mad at me for saying that. Get mad at God, because he said it long before I did. Right? In Abraham's case, his he was old. You know, he's almost 100 years old. His wife is long past childbearing ages, and we all know what that means. He, he was nearing 100 years old, and chapter 4 says that Abraham still believed. He believed he had faith that God could do the impossible. He believed that God could bring life where there was no life. He trusted in God's ability to bring new life, that very thing that, that Laura talked about in her video. And the reason that justification by faith is is so important for the church in Rome is the same reason that it's important and critical for all of us. Because we want to believe in our humanness that we bring something to the table. So it's Jesus and going to church. So it's Jesus and reading my Bible. It's Jesus and acts of justice, right? It's Jesus and something else. It's just our natural tendency to add to the gospel. But if you add anything to the gospel, if you believe your works earn you anything from God, then you're taking away from the power of the cross. Or let me say it this way. If you add to the gospel, you take away from Jesus. If you add anything to the gospel, you take away from Jesus. Look at verse 16. It says, that is why it. So if you've got the journal, if you're using the journal, I encourage you to circle the word it and draw a line over to the blank page and write the word justification because that's what he's talking about. It there refers to justification. That is why justification depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. This is one of the reoccurring themes of the New Testament writings. Over and over, the people have to be brought back to their understanding of salvation by grace. So Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 6. He says, O foolish Galatians. For the record, if you get a letter that starts with O fool... It's not a good way to start, but he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you, right? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit, right? Were you saved, he's saying, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the spirit or now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Are you earning those things, he's saying, or by hearing with faith? And then he uses that phrase again. Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Do you see it? Over and over and over, the followers of Jesus slip into this pattern of believing that they can work to earn something from God. 
And when you add anything to the gospel, you take away from Jesus. So this chapter of Romans, it's all about faith and God's incredible grace, his unmerited, his, his unearned, his, his favor. Pastor Al Coonley, who was here for a season of time when grace desperately needed him, used to always say, grace is getting the good you don't deserve and not getting the bad you deserve. Right? Deep down, deep down, most of us in the church, and really the church for all of its history, if you study church history, you see this for over 2,000 years, the church has struggled with the concept and the ramifications of grace. Paul touches on it in verse 4 and 5. Look at it. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages to count, are not counted to him as a gift, but as due. If you have a job and you work and you punch the clock and you do what you're supposed to do, you get paid because you've earned what you've worked for. Right? That makes sense to us. That's the economy that we all sort of understand. And then he says in verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. And so in our humanness, we have an inherent problem with grace. And I want to talk about some of those problems. Now, these are not the problems with grace. This is the way we view grace that create a problem. And the first is it seems unfair. Grace seems unfair. Jesus understood this. And so when he talked about what the kingdom of God is like, he used the exact same analogy that Paul just wrote about. Remember the story of the the workers in the field? There were workers that went out in the field and they worked all day. In the hot sun, they labored away. They worked all day. And along came some people and and they went out to work in the field. But they only worked a very short amount of time, right? And and, and when the day was over, they all got paid the same amount of money. And people were upset and said, that's not fair. Right? That's not fair. We worked harder than they did. Why do they get what... What we got when we work so much harder, grace seems in our humanness to be unfair. The problem with grace is it seems unfair, and it offends our sense of justice. You see, we all have a little bit of Jonah in us. You remember the story of Jonah? God said to Jonah, he said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was some bad people who had done some bad things against the people of God. And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them about God and tell them if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah says, no, I don't want to go because I want you to destroy them. Right? What I really want is justice. They're bad people. They deserve justice. I'm not going to go and through a series of crazy events, which if you read the story, you know all about. Right? If you don't know the story, you can watch it on Veggie Tales. But anyway... Jonah ends up going, and he ends up preaching the message of repentance. Three days, and God is going to bring disaster. Repent. And the people repent, and God relents and doesn't bring disaster. And then Jonah is mad at God. He says, see, see, I told you. I knew that you were gracious and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you would relent. The irony of the story of Jonah is Jonah is the recipient of God's grace. Jonah is the rebellious prophet. Jonah is the one that's disobeying God, yet he can't see his own need for grace, but he can certainly see how the people of Nineveh deserve God's punishment. It offends our sense of justice. He even writes in this passage in verse 4, he says, a God who justifies the ungodly. Well, that's not right. Right? You You can't justify the ungodly. I mean, I mean, they're ungodly. They need to get what they deserve. That's where our human nature takes us. 
And here's the deal. Our propensity to be offended by grace is exacerbated by our current culture. We live in an offense-obsessed culture. We are more and more and more incapable of having civil conversations with people who disagree with. We vilify anyone who disagrees with us, and we see it in our political system, and we see it in the media, and we see it on social media. As a people, we are just more and more easily offended. The problem is, like Jonah, we don't see our own depravity. We don't believe we're as fallen as those people, right? We, we put ourselves in a different category, and Romans is making it crystal clear. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all in desperate need of God's grace. If we knew how much grace has been extended to us, we would be far more gracious with others. The fact is a person who is easily offended doesn't understand their own depravity or their own need for grace. This is what I want you to hear this morning. Offense is a choice. You can choose to be offended, but grace is also a choice. You can choose to extend grace. You can choose to be as gracious to others as God has been to you. The problem with grace is it seems unfair. It offends our sense of justice, and it seems really ambiguous Right? There's no I's to dot, no T's to cross. What we think we want is a list of just tell me what I need to do. Like, give me, a, give me a list of do's and don'ts, and I'll do that, and then I'll be okay with God. We fail to recognize that he did that, and we couldn't do them and don't them. Pretty sure that's bad English. Right? We, we couldn't keep it anyway. So it seems ambiguous, and it seems reckless. People are going to abuse it. Come on, God, grace isn't going to work. People are going to keep doing what they want to do and not doing what you want them to do. It's, it's easy to keep sinning and saying, it's, it's okay because God's grace is sufficient for me. Right? And, and all the while, we fail to realize the relational benefit of walking faithfully with God, the, the relational benefit of doing the very things that God is calling us to do. And that leads me to the last problem that we have with grace is it can be abused. We slip into habitual sin with an attitude that God's grace is sufficient, God will forgive me. And in the end, our families are decimated. And our hearts are divided and churches split and our witness is compromised. Sin never reaps a profit. It always has a cost. Always. And all those problems are just part of our fallen nature, right? It's part of who we are in our, in our human nature. And Paul is writing a letter to say, no, it's, it's all about grace. And grace isn't a problem. As a matter of fact, grace is the ultimate and only solution. So we've talked about the problem, but let me just share with you the beauty and the power of grace. The beauty of grace is it fosters humility. You are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Grace levels the playing field. I am as much in need of grace as any of you are. You are as much in need of grace of any person you will ever 
meat in your life. It levels the playing field. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it fosters humility. It, it reveals the power of the cross, right? It, it reveals that, that Jesus' death and his resurrection paid the price that we could, we could never pay. Nothing else is, is needed. It provides a way when there was absolutely no other option. The cross is what brings the dead to life. The cross is what brings beauty from ashes. The cross is the miracle of all miracles. So the beauty of grace is it fosters humility, it reveals the power of the cross, and it gives us a proper context for works. Stay with me here. Book of James says, faith without works is dead. We are not called to sit and be idle. As a matter of fact, Romans 4 is saying perfectly and clearly, when we understand who we are before God, when we understand our rights and standing, when we have an accurate understanding of the gospel and all of the grace that we've received, when we understand all of that and live into that, going to church, right, or reading your Bible, or acts of justice, or obeying your parents, or sharing the gospel with your friends at, at school, or in the, in the marketplace, all of that become an expression of what you already have with God, right? There's a major difference between I'm doing this to earn something from God, and I'm doing this because God has already done something spectacular in my life. Paul wants you to see this clearly, so look at verses 10 and 11. Again, he says, how then was it, again, if you're working in your journal, circle the word it, right, justification off to the side. How was then was justification counted to him, Abraham? Get that? How then was justification counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness that he had faith while he was still uncircumcised. If you could get one more circumcised in those two sentences, I don't know how you could do it. But anyway, point being, Abraham was saved by faith, and then God asked him to do something. He asked him to do something as a sign of what God has already done. And so Abraham was obedient, and Abraham was circumcised as a sign or a seal of what God had already done. Abraham was extended grace. Abraham then lived out this new identity. Here's what you need to hear. Obedience matters. Doing what God prompts you to do when God prompts you to do it, it matters. Not to earn your salvation, not to earn anything from God, but because you're saved, right? To walk in a way that's worthy of all that you have received through the gospel. It's a way to honor God for all that he's given to you. The more we understand the gospel, the more we understand grace, the price Jesus paid, the more we are going to extend that to others. And the more we should be motivated to walk faithfully with him. Beauty of grace fosters humility, Reveals the power of the cross. It gives us proper context for us. And it's an open invitation to everyone. Look at verse 11. The purpose of justification by faith was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believed. Grace exists to create a path that anyone can be brought into the family of God. 
Can you, like, I was writing this and I just kind of amused myself thinking about this. So now I'm going to try to amuse you. Anyway, can you imagine evangelism in the Old Testament times? So here's the deal. God wants to know you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. And all you have to do is get circumcised. Oh, no more bacon, no more barbecued ribs, no more seafood. Oh, and if I didn't bring it up yet, there's a sacrificial system that's really, really complicated. Oh, and there's some purification things that you have to go through too. But hey, God really wants to be with you. You in? Right? I I would be like, I was out at number one. (laughs) Right? It creates a path, right? It creates a way for, for all of us to be invited into the kingdom of God. Through grace, through faith, we are all, as Galatians 4.20 says, Eight says, like Isaac, we are children of the promise. Yes. Listen to what I'm going to say right here. As recipients of radical grace, like when we really understand the gospel and, and understand how much grace we've received, as recipients of radical grace, we are then called to be purveyors of radical grace. We are called to offer radical and total forgiveness the way Jesus models. Right? We, we see this in Laura's video. Offering grace to the very person that abused you, that doesn't make human sense, but it's the radical grace that she received that she then wanted to extend to others. I found myself thinking about this a lot as I was preparing the sermon, the idea that we are to be radical purveyors of grace. And I thought of John 14, 12. A lot of you will know this passage, but Jesus is talking and he says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, so that's many of you in this room, myself included, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. I have always read this passage and interpreted this passage in the realm of miracles, right? Cause the blind to see, lame to walk, uh, all of those, those physical manifestations. And that is not an inaccurate way to look at it. But I have never thought about this passage as an application to being purveyors of grace. I have extended grace to you. Jesus is saying, I have extended radical grace to you. And now I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you so that you can be as radical in your extending of grace to those around you. How do we do it? We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We can actually be a people who are unoffendable, right? When we know who Jesus is and we know all that Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to wrap this up with just one question. Why grace? Because there was no other way, right? Because it's the only hope that we have. Grace does what we can never do. Only Jesus can bring the dead to life, can cause the blind to see, can bring beauty from ashes. Laura's story, it's a miracle of grace. My story, the redemption of my family and my marriage, it's a miracle of grace. Kevin's story that you heard two weeks ago, it's a miracle of grace. Stacy's story is a miracle of grace. God bringing life where there was no life. God bringing light where there was only darkness. Grace awakens our hearts and our souls, and it calls for radical lives before God. 
It reminds us that nothing is impossible for God. The call of Romans is to look and see. Like, turn your eyes to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus and receive his radical grace. You can't clean yourself up. You can't do enough good. Put your faith in the giver of life. If there was an application for the message this morning, it's this. Receive and meditate on the grace of God. Understand all that you've received. Meditate on the grace that you received. And then extend it to those around you. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, become a purveyor of grace. When you feel yourself becoming offended, we all know that feeling, right? When you, when you feel it starting, remember how much grace you received and choose grace, not offense. When you're overlooked, when you're undervalued, when you're betrayed, extend grace. I just want us to be grace, not just in name, but that we would be Grace Community Church, that this would be what we're known for. I don't know what's going on at that church, but those people are the most gracious people I've ever interacted with. That would be amazing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for grace. Oh, I'm so thankful for grace. Without it, I have no hope. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the finished, complete work on the cross. Help us not to be a people who add anything to the gospel and take away from the beauty of Jesus. Lord, I pray for the people in this room who haven't quite put their faith in you yet. Maybe today's the day that they would say yes. They'd stop hovering around the truth and they would put their faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have made that decision in the past, I pray that we would come back to the heart of the gospel, that we would be people of grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, just a quick announcement. Meg and I are going to have one more uh, social event on our patio. Uh, so we talk about pizza on the patio. We have a wood-fired pizza oven. We'll make you pizza, homemade pizzas on October 14th. For those of you who are wondering where my patio is, if you just go out in the parking lot and look over to the side, we live right here on the campus, and we would love to have you uh, come to that. But we need to know that you're coming so we just know how much pizza to prepare. Uh, we'll cook it for you right then, but we need to know how much stuff to buy. Uh, but that's next week, and we just need you to sign up for that. So you can do that online. And then I just want to share with what we heard as the people prayed for you this morning, uh, that there are people who are broken and hurting, uh, that there's a lot of loneliness and anxiety, and he wants to uh, intervene in that, that there's some who are struggling with a heavy yoke of condemnation. And Romans 8.2 says, the law of the Spirit is life, and it has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sounds like a sermon I once heard. Uh, there is a call uh, to position our hearts to more fully receive the gospel in every 
area of our lives. So if any of that resonates with you, we'd love to pray for you. There's people down here that will pray for you. Uh, and then if you're online, there's a couple numbers on your screen right now that you can call and they'll put you into a private Zoom appointment with somebody who's trained to pray with you as well. God bless you. Come back next week as we jump into Romans chapter 5.